Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. Congress is back in town this week, and after last Tuesday's off-year elections, all eyes are on 2020, where control of the House, Senate, and White House will all be up for grabs. This is Suspending the Rules, a podcast from Bloomberg Government. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Sarah Babbage. Normally, this show focuses on what's happening in Congress right now. But on this episode, we're going to zoom out of it and look at next year's congressional elections. Joining us in the studio are BGov campaigns and elections reporter, Greg Giroux. Hello. As well as politics editor, Kyle Trickstad. Hey. Let's start with last week's elections, which have generally been billed as a defeat for President Donald Trump and the Republicans. Greg, what are your big takeaways for him and, and the GOP? Well, the Kentucky governor's race was an embarrassment for the White House in the sense that Donald Trump came into Kentucky to try and boost up the incumbent Republican, Matt Bevin. But um, I'm not sure it tells us a whole lot about the national environment because Bevin was a flawed incumbent. He had a poor approval rating and he picked fights. He had an acerbic style, had picked fights with the teachers' unions. And the fact that the Republicans won every other statewide race in Kentucky shows me that this was not really about Trump. It was more about uh, Bevin's flaws. So uh, Kentucky, while it flipped to the Democrats, Andy Bashir was uh, elected governor, uh, was one of the biggest uh, part, one of the biggest news of the evening. The Republicans held the governorship in Mississippi. Uh, the Democrats, as expected, I think, uh, won the legislature in Virginia. And so uh, not too many big surprises, although uh, Andy Bashir's victory in uh, Kentucky was probably a mild upset, given that incumbents, uh, incumbent governors don't really lose too frequently. That's right. And Trump loves to come in and save the day, right? He, he, he uh, claimed a victory in North Carolina's ninth congressional district, the special election uh, uh, just a couple months ago. And he didn't have the same luck uh, this time. But yeah, I think, I think the Virginia results tell us a whole lot. They say more than anything else, I think, from Tuesday, because we continue to see voters in the suburbs move away from Republicans. Um, This is a trend we started seeing in 2016, uh, 2017, and uh, it kind of blew up in the midterm elections in 2018. Uh, And so Tuesdays just seemed like a, a continuation of that. So looking at the Senate for next year, Republicans are defending 23 seats. Democrats are defending 12. How hopeful should Democrats be about holding on to their current seats? Uh, Of the 12 they hold, most of them should be safely in the Democratic column, but they do have almost certainly the most vulnerable seat uh, up in in either party, and that's uh, the Alabama seat of Doug Jones, who was elected in a 2017 special election over Republican Roy Moore, a flawed candidate. Uh, Alabama actually has the uh, earliest filing deadline in the nation, and Jeff Sessions, uh, the former senator and attorney general, is running for that seat, trying to reclaim his seat uh, in what's going to be a crowded Republican primary in March. President Trump carried Alabama by almost 30 percentage points, and it's very, very rare to see a senator of one party representing a state so strongly won by the presidential candidate of the opposite party. So that's going to be a tough hold for the Democrats, regardless of the Republican opponent. After that, maybe Michigan, where Gary Peters is seeking re-election. That's a seat I'm keeping an eye on. Uh, Peters is not uh, in the same league of vulnerability as, say, uh, as Doug Jones is. But um, uh, 
it's a much more favorable map to the Democrats than it was in 2018 when they had 26 seats to defend compared to nine. And as you mentioned, Sarah, it's 23 to 12 seats in terms of uh, Republicans having much more to defend than Democrats. Yeah, and Republicans are very bullish on their candidate in Michigan, John James, who ran last time, lost by, what, about six points uh, to the senator there, uh, the other Democratic senator there, uh, Debbie Stabenow. Um, and interestingly, one Democratic seat we're not talking about is New Hampshire, Gene Shaheen. That's a state Trump only lost by a point or two uh, in 2016, and yet uh, Republicans didn't get the candidate they really wanted, which is the governor, Chris Sununu, who announced he's going to uh, run for re-election instead. Um, so yeah, Democrats are looking good in terms of holding their own. What about on offense for the Democrats? They need three or four seats, depending on how the presidential election turns out in 2020, to take the Senate. How are they feeling about that? Well, of the 23 uh, contests where Republicans are the defending party, most of them are probably out of range for the Democrats. Uh, there are 15 of them in states that President Trump won by at least 14 percentage points. So it's going to be hard for them. Although there are a couple of states in there you need to keep an eye on, like Kansas and even Kentucky, where Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is seeking re-election. But of the states that are more politically competitive, there are two states where Republican senators are defending seats in states that President Trump lost in 2016, Colorado and Maine. Colorado is where Cory Gardner is seeking a second term. Democratic opponents there include John Hickenlooper, the former governor and former presidential candidate. And in Maine, uh, Susan Collins is seeking um, a fifth term in a state that was uh, votes Democratic for president, but only narrowly against Donald Trump in 2016. The Democratic candidates there, uh, the likely Democratic candidate there is the state House Speaker Sarah Gideon. But there are some states where Donald Trump won narrowly in 2016 that are mildly Republican-leaning. You have to keep an eye on like states like Georgia and Texas, which are uh, probably tough lifts for the Democrats to win seats. Uh, but uh, there are some other states that uh, you have to keep an eye on, um, that like Arizona, for example, where Martha McSally is seeking re-election, or North Carolina, where Tom Tillis is seeking re-election, or even Iowa, where Joni Ernst is seeking a second term. Mildly Republican states that uh, may not be uh, pro-Trump in uh, 2020, but were in 2016. Could you talk a little bit about uh, Massachusetts and what's going on with the primary between Democrats there? Yeah, it's a very compelling primary. It won't uh, lead to a seat flip in the sense that Massachusetts is a, a longtime Democratic stronghold. Uh, but uh, in one of the more compelling uh, primaries of the election cycle, you have uh, uh, Joe Kennedy, the grandson of Robert F. Kennedy, um, former senator and presidential candidate, uh, seeking to unseat uh, Senator Ed Markey. Um, came to the Senate in 2013 in a special election, a longtime Democratic congressman before that uh, for almost 40 years. They have pretty similar views, uh, almost indistinguishable views, I think, in voting records. Uh, both are liberals or progressives. Um, and it's more of a generational contrast in that Joe Kennedy's in his, still in his late 30s and Ed Markey's in his 70s. I don't think they'll disagree a lot on policy, but it is interesting in the sense that while they don't ag disagree on much, uh, it is a kind of an interesting generational contrast uh, to see there. Yeah, and, and you know, I've, uh, I've thought about Kennedy and why he's running and and uh, you know, we all can recognize his last name, Kennedy, right? So you got to think he has ambitions beyond the House, certainly, and even beyond the Senate. Mm -hmm. um, he's going to be turning 40, I think, next year, um, next year or the year after. Um, and in 2028, where, when uh, the White House could be an open seat race again, potentially, uh, he'll be about uh, 48. Um, and so that's kind of about that sweet spot in terms of when you might want to run for president. Just throwing that out there. 
Yeah, and our listeners surely know that the uh, Senate is a well-known incubator of presidential ambition. Exactly. So. Mm-hmm. Although this year you'd be forgiven if you thought mid-70s was the sweet spot <laughs> right. to run for president. <laughs> Uh, Greg, earlier you mentioned Mitch McConnell and running for re-election in Kentucky. Democrats are, are eyeing that seat. Is there? Ha, what are the odds of a, a flip there in Kentucky, given Bevin's election? I know you, you said the statewide, the other statewide races were all Republican holds, but... Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a seat to keep an eye on. Uh, Mitch McConnell is never, uh, he doesn't have the greatest approval ratings, kind of mediocre approval ratings in Kentucky, actually. In 2014, uh, a lot of the polls in his re-election race, which is a very good Republican year, by the way, uh, when he ran for re-election, a lot of the surveys showed him in a race that was maybe in the mid to high single digits, but he wound up winning by almost 15 percentage points in what was a Republican upswing. So uh, he has a great security blanket in President Trump, who won the state by 30 percentage points in 2016. Mitch McConnell will not come close to matching President Trump's performance in 2016. I think the race could be a a single-digit race eventually. He's got a serious Democratic opponent in Amy McGrath, uh, military veteran who uh, ran a very close race for a very Republican-leaning or pro-Trump district in uh, 2018. So it's a race to keep an eye on, but uh, getting to 50% plus one against the Senate Majority Leader in Kentucky is a very tall order. Yeah, Democrats, it's, you know, because it's the majority leader, Democrats have to compete there. They had to put up a a candidate. McGrath is going to be able to raise money. Um, But Democrats aren't banking on this uh, in terms of trying to win the majority. Let's switch now and talk about the House. Um, A lot of the Democrats that were kind of the majority makers for the current Congress uh, from districts that had supported Donald Trump and then switched to Democrats in 2018 um, uh, will be seeking re-election. So what should we be looking for with those races? Yeah, well, there are several dozen races we sort of know that are going to be highly competitive just by the fact that Uh, They are Democrats from districts that uh, voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton in 2016. There aren't too many of those districts. There are only 31 districts uh, nationwide where you have a Democrat in Congress right now that in a district that President Trump carried and just three uh, where you have a Republican from a district that Hillary Clinton won. So we're going to watching. We've been at, at BGov. We've been watching very closely those 31 uh, Trump district Democrats, as, as I like to call them. Uh, most of them are freshmen, and most of them did flip districts from the Republicans in the 2018 election. Uh, they uh, they come from all uh, walks of life and all over the country. You have three of them in Iowa, four of them in New York, several of them in New Jersey. Uh, but we're watching those 31 Trump district Democrats. They're fundraising. Uh, their votes on the floor, the amendments they propose, the legislation they propose, uh, what the Democratic leadership is doing to kind of get them some uh, attention because uh, those 31 Democrats, that number 31 is much greater than the uh, seat, the number of seats that Democrats can afford to lose in the 2020 election. They want to hold their majority. They have, uh, they can, uh, the, Repu- the Democrats have uh, basically control of 235 districts. So they can afford to lose, you know, 17 seats, but um, you know, 31 Trump district Democrats means they need to uh, uh, just underscores how important they are to holding the majority. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned uh, the suburbs uh, earlier about, you know, takeaways from Tuesday. And, you know, th- there's a lot of, you know, traditionally Republican areas um, that House Republicans are going to want to try to win back despite um, the clear movement away from the party in the suburbs. And that's, you know, places like Georgia's sixth district outside of Atlanta, um, even Oklahoma's Fifth district, which is uh, Oklahoma City, um, that's probably the the one Republicans really want to win back, um, and a lot of the suburban um, seats out in uh, Orange County, uh, that's a, you know, and around Houston, all these seats uh, are places Republicans 
are hoping is not uh, a long-term trend away from them, but um, everything we've been seeing uh, doesn't look great for them. But those are places where they are targeting. Yeah, so you mentioned Houston, and we've seen kind of an exodus of um, Republicans from Texas um, who are currently in office saying they're not going to run again recently. So is that is that related to kind of like a shift in Texas, or is it just kind of coincidental? And what do you think we'll see in those races? Well, I think some of it was related to, I think there were some ranking members whose time was up. And some of those seats are, are very safe Republican seats, um, and so Democrats aren't going to be targeting them. But some of the others are very competitive, and I think some of those Republicans were seeing very competitive races ahead and were trying to get out um, ahead of that. Yeah, not only do you have chairman or ranking members, the Republicans have a term limit on how, how long you can serve as, a, uh, as the top member on a committee, just six years, whether you're a chairman or a ranking member. Um, Texas also has one of the earlier filing deadlines, and while uh, and so we had some, I think, a spike in retirements kind of earlier in the cycle. Though, please, uh, I think our listeners w- should expect uh, more retirements to come in other states in the fourth quarter of this year and in the first quarter of 2020. I'd say a couple of districts to watch there: uh, Pete Olson in Texas's 22nd district, suburban Houston, and then uh, Texas's 24th district of Kenny Marchant in uh, the Metro uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, and I'd mention outside of Texas, Georgia's 7th District by Rob Woodall, also retiring in Metro Atlanta. What all those three districts have in common is you have re- retiring Republican incumbents from districts that have been diversifying, that used to be strongly Republican, but have become much more politically competitive as they diversify and in the era of Donald Trump. We talked about the Massachusetts Senate primary earlier. Are there any House primary elections you're keeping an eye on? Oh, sure. Um, there are always uh, some interesting primaries to watch. And, uh, you know, certainly months before the election, you have our first congressional primaries coming up in March. And so you, you sort of want to keep an eye on, uh, you know, serious primary challenges. Um, I think on the Democratic side, um, you have a couple of ideological primaries that are coming fairly early in the cycle. And I'd mention uh, uh, in Illinois' third district, uh, you have uh, Dan Lipinski who's been in uh, Congress since 2004, facing a rematch against a more liberal challenger, Marie Newman, who almost unseated Lipinski in the 2018 primary. Lipinski is a blue dog Democrat, uh, one of the more kind of uh, moderate Democrats who emphasize fiscal restraint, as is the congressman from Texas's 28th district in the Laredo area, uh, Henry Cuellar, another blue dog who faces, I think, a big spending primary challenge. Hard to say how competitive it will be because Cuellar hasn't really had serious primary opposition, unlike uh, Lipinski. But those are two primaries early in the cycle, early in March, I'm watching very closely. Yeah, and on the, on the other side, you've, you've got Steve King in Iowa's 4th District, who won narrowly last, last year. And Democrats, it was the only seat Democrats didn't pick up. Um, they would love to win that again. But this time, he's got several primary challengers, some very serious. Um, so we'll see how he does. We discussed the Louisiana governor's race on a previous episode, and the runoff vote is coming up this weekend. What should we be watching for there, um, especially in terms of, you know, Trump's role? Yeah, well, Trump is trying to, Trump and the Republicans, uh, led by the Republican nominee, Eddie Rispone, a, a businessman, are trying to nationalize that race. It's a state that President Trump won by about 20 percentage points. Here you have the interesting scenario of a Democratic governor as the incumbent, John Bell Edwards, who was elected in 2015, rather convincingly over a flawed Republican candidate, David Vitter, the former senator. It's a lot about the clash between a Democratic governor's popularity at the state level versus the uh, 
kind of the national political trends of it being a Republican-leading state. And so uh, Edwards has a, a strong approval rating, as I mentioned. He's downplaying his national party affiliation, uh, talking a lot about the things he's done for the state, emphasizing his anti-abortion and pro-gun stances in a culturally conservative state. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see. It's a Louisiana is unusual that they have their elections on Saturday. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely watching that as uh, as kind of like the next uh, uh, kind of taking of the temperature of the electorate uh, in this uh, mid in this uh, off year election. That's right, and it's another state where Trump's going in there to um, help save the party. He doesn't want losses in heavily Republican states a year before his own election. I think that's a good place to end it. Thanks to BGov Politics Editor Kyle Trickstad and Campaigns and Elections Reporter Greg Giroux for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find more on the subjects we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg Government at about.begov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BGov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Danielle Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information on that can be found at premiumbeat.com. Cases and Controversies is all about the Supreme Court. One of the seven oh, come on. Words. You know, come on. Well, I agree Be with serious. you. We sit down with leading practitioners and scholars to break down these cases. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up so I didn't have to. But, uh... <laughs> oh, I interesting, know that. Right? That is See? interesting. I guess my imagination is running wild. <laughs> Tune in every week for our deep dive and sneak peek episodes wherever you get your podcasts. As always, check out the latest at news.bloomberglaw.com. Ha, 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 ha.